Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the many blessings that we've received from your hand uh, during this day. We thank you for the privilege of being here tonight to study this lesson. We ask, Lord, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. Teach us the things that will be useful and helpful to us in our personal walk with Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you will bless those who are on the way, bring them safely here through the ministry of your angels. We thank you, Lord, for hearing us and for answering our prayer, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To begin our lesson study tonight, I want to review a verse that we have previously studied, which uh, will set the stage for our discussion in the class tonight. I'm referring to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We're going to put the elements on the board so that we have it clear in our minds what this verse is dealing with. Okay, Genesis 3 verse 15 says, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity. So the first element that you have is enmity. Between you, that is between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. I want you to notice how the enmity runs. The enmity runs horizontally between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's seed, which means the followers of Satan, and the seed of the woman. But as we noticed in this verse, the real enmity is not the enmity between the serpent and the woman, and the respective seeds of both the serpent and the woman. The real enmity is between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Because the verse ends by saying, He, that is the seed of the woman, will crush your head, but you will wound or you will strike his heel. So the real enmity runs between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And of course, we've already identified the seed of the woman as Jesus Christ. So the real enmity is between Christ and Satan. And of course, we need to understand that there's also enmity between Satan and the woman. And there's also enmity between the followers of Satan and the followers of Christ. But the primary enmity or the primary war is between Satan who is represented by the serpent and Jesus Christ. Now, with this in mind, we would like to review certain stories in the Old Testament. We don't have these in the lesson, but we, I did give you a handout. Uh, the title of that handout is Satan's War Against the Seed. I gave it to you several sessions ago. And you'll notice that all throughout the Old Testament, what Satan is trying to do is maneuver so that the seed cannot come. I don't know whether you read that handout. It's front and back, one page. I gave several examples from the Old Testament about how Satan uh, uses two methods to try and keep the seed from coming. One method is by trying to destroy the seed by persecution. And the second method is by trying to corrupt the lineage or corrupt the holy line so that the holy line or the lineage uh, will disappear and if there's no lineage, obviously at the end there's not going to be any Messiah either. 
So what the devil does in several instances in the Old Testament, he tries to destroy Israel. He tries to obliterate Israel from existence. We remember, for example, when Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem, 185,000 soldiers, intent on totally destroying the city because the Assyrians did not take prisoners. They basically just obliterated everything that came in their path. And uh, his intent was to totally destroy Jerusalem and the inhabitants in there. But the angel of the Lord came and destroyed his 185,000 uh, troops. In the days of Esther, you remember that uh, Haman wanted to commit genocide. He wanted to destroy every single one of the Jews. And all throughout the Old Testament, we find Satan using the nations to try and destroy Israel. And many people have misunderstood this to mean that Satan hated Israel. But this is a superficial interpretation of the reason why Satan persecuted. You see, Satan tried to destroy Israel because from Israel would come the Messiah. From the lineage of Israel, ultimately the Messiah would come. And if the devil could destroy the lineage from which the Messiah would come, there would be no Messiah. In other words, the Old Testament is Messiah-centered. The center of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. It is not Israel. That is a mistaken assessment that Israel is at the center of the Old Testament. Israel is only instrumental for bringing the Messiah into the world. Even Abraham is instrumental for bringing the Messiah into the world. The other method that the devil used was to try and corrupt the lineage so that corrupting the lineage it would disappear and of course there would be no one to introduce the Messiah into the world. There's several examples of this. Uh, I'll give you just one. Before the flood. How many people do you think lived in this world before the flood? A thousand? Well let me help you along a little bit. Uh, before, before the flood there were 1,656 years of history. Men lived to be almost a thousand years old. God told uh, humanity to be fruitful and multiply. There was no sterility. There was no um, scarcity of natural resources, of food. How many children do you suppose a 969-year-old man can have? <laughs> An awful lot of children. And of course, those children also had children. So there's no doubt whatsoever that in 1,656 years, this world must have had millions of inhabitants. And some have said probably even billions of inhabitants. But let's stick at millions. That'll serve our purposes. How many people were still faithful to God when God sent the flood? Eight people. Out of the millions of people in the world, there were only eight people faithful. What was the devil's agenda? You see, what he did not do by persecution and by trying to destroy physically the seed, like he did, by the way, with Abel, he did by mixing the two seeds, the sons of God and the daughters of men, the righteous and the unrighteous, and by blending the two seeds, the lineage of the Messiah became corrupted. And if it had not been for the fact that God sent the flood, the human race would have been totally degenerated and there would not have been any lineage through which to bring the Messiah into the world. 
Let me give you just one other example. See, the, the, all these stories in the Old Testament you have to read from the perspective of, of uh, the battle of Satan against the seed. Let me ask you, is the very existence of Satan at stake in this thing? Yes! yes. God says, I'm going to send you a seed. He's going to crush your head. So Satan says from that point on, I can't let this seed come. You know, one or two other examples. You know, David here is playing the harp for, for King Saul. It happens three times. Saul takes his spear and hurls his spear at David to nail him to the wall. Why did Saul do that? Well, the Bible tells us that Saul was demon-possessed. An evil spirit took over. Now, why do you suppose that the evil spirit wanted to see David dead? Because there were prophecies that said that the Messiah would be the seed of David. Does this help you look at it in a different perspective? See, the devil knows that Israel could not prevail over him. Adam didn't prevail over him in his perfect uh, nature in the Garden of Eden. So the devil knew that he had gained the victory over everyone because everyone sinned. If anyone was going to beat him, it would be one who, who would not sin. Let me give you one other example before we get into the lesson. Because you've read the lesson, you've studied the lesson, we can go through it quickly. Wasn't that interesting to see the parallel between Moses and Christ? It's amazing. There, there, that's the fantastic parallel between Moses and Christ. Let me give you another example, the story of Joseph. Are you understanding that we need to read the news behind the news? Yes. We're supposed to see what's really going on behind this, why the devil does this? Why do human beings do these things? It's because there's a power behind them that has an agenda, which is Satan. The story of Joseph. You know, if you really want to read, want to read a travesty injustice, <laughs> the story of Joseph. I was a good kid. And here, his brothers hate him. They sell him off to Egypt because of no fault of his. He ends up in Potiphar's house. He's very faithful to Potiphar and faithful to God, and it lands, lands him in jail. And you say, Joseph got a raw deal. But you see, at the end of the story, we find the reason why God allowed Joseph to go into Egypt and to suffer all of these tribulations that he suffered. At the end of the story, see, when Joseph is going through it, he doesn't understand all of the reasons. But at the end, when he can look back, he finally reveals himself to his brothers and he says, I am Joseph. And his brothers, you know, they hug him and they say, oh, we're so sorry, Joseph, that we did this to you. Please forgive us. And Joseph says, don't be too hard on yourselves. For the Lord has sent me down to Egypt to preserve the seed. That's what it says in Genesis 45. He has sent me down to Egypt to preserve the seed. And how did he preserve the seed? Because there were seven years of what? Famine. A famine. What would have happened if Joseph had not gone to Egypt and had not provided for the needs of his family? They would have all starved to death. And if Jacob and his family starved to death, where would the Messiah come from? No Messiah. So we are to look at the Old Testament from the perspective of the Messiah. The warfare of Satan is against the Messiah. 
Even after Genesis 3.15, we have the story of Cain and Abel. What a fantastic story. I didn't want to belabor this point so much, but it's important that you understand all these stories in the Old Testament because they're stories not of the enmity of Satan against, uh, against mere people. It's He's trying to get at the seed, keeping the seed from coming. You have the story of Cain and Abel. Do you know you have the same elements of Genesis 3.15 in the story of Cain and Abel? Is there a woman? Yes, who is the woman? Eve. Is there enmity? Oh, yes. Are there two seeds? Is there a serpent? Well, you say not directly. But when you go to 1 John 3.12, it says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and killed his brother. See, the Bible says in the New Testament that Cain was of the wicked one. Who is the wicked one? Satan. Why would Satan want Abel dead? Because at this point, the devil suspected that perhaps Abel was the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. And so when he destroys Abel, he says, my agenda has been fulfilled. But then Genesis 4.25 says that God gave Eve another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain killed, so that the lineage of the Messiah could continue. And so all of these interpretations of prophecy that make Israel the center of prophecy are misguided. You see, in the Old Testament, Satan hates the seed, which is Jesus. But now that Jesus has escaped from the hands of Satan, Satan now hates the seed's seed, the body of Christ. See, the war, the real war is not Arabs versus Jews. Because both the Jews and the Arabs need Jesus. The war is against those who have received Jesus and those who have not. That's the end time war. And the reason why the devil hates the followers of Jesus is because he hates Jesus. He was not able to destroy Jesus, so he's going to take second best. He's going to try and destroy the people of Jesus. Does this help you? Does this broaden your understanding of Bible prophecy? I hope it does. Because this is the way Jesus is at the very center of the Bible in a prophecy. Jesus said, these are they which testify of me. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me, is what Jesus said. And there's many people who don't believe that Christ is in the Old Testament. Have mercy. We need to pray for them. Now let's go to our lesson. From the inception of sin, 4,000 years have gone by approximately. The devil has done everything in his power to destroy the seed, to corrupt the seed, but now the day has come for the seed to be born into the world. The devil has not been able to prevent the seed from coming. Now in order to understand the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and the story of uh, Revelation chapter 12, we need to understand the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. By the way, have you noticed how important it is to... Uh, have the Old Testament when we deal with Daniel, when we deal with the book of Revelation? It's of critical importance. See, for those who say that we're New Testament Christians and we don't need the Old Testament, uh, you're trying uh, to walk without legs. You see, because the foundation of the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. There are over a thousand references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And so there's no way we can understand Revelation unless we understand the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament is the foundation. And so let's take a look at this Exodus story. And you filled out the space. How many of you, by the way, did your lesson tonight? Raise your hand, those who did your lesson. Well, what about the rest of you? <laughs> let's go to the first section of our lesson. In our study of this magnificent verse, we noted four basic ideas, enmity, woman, serpent, and seed. These four ideas are fully developed in Revelation 12, 1 to 5. But before we delve into the Revelation passage, we must study another Old Testament story, the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Now let's go through this Old Testament story very quickly and uh, see how it forms the backdrop for what happens in Revelation 12. Number one, God is spoken of as Israel's what? Husband. husband, which means that Israel is his wife. wife. Good. You caught that point. That's great. So the woman represents whom? Which church? Which church? In Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, which church? The Old Testament church. Are you with me? Does God call Israel in the Old Testament his wife? Does Jesus call the New Testament church his wife? How many wives does Jesus have? Is he a bigamist? Listen, he has two stages of his wife, but it's the same wife. It's faithful Israel. We're going to study this next time when we get together. So God is spoken of as Israel's husband. In other words, Israel is his wife. Number two. Israel was in cruel and bitter what? Bondage to the Egyptians. And I hope that you read these verses. They were in terrible bondage. Number three, Israel, Israel was crying out to God in travail because of her what? Because of her bondage. What did Israel want more than anything else in the world? They wanted to be delivered. They wanted to be freed. Number four, Israel's taskmaster was Pharaoh, who is called the great monster. Unfortunately, this New King James Version slips up sometimes. Um, you know, in the old King James, it says dragon. That's a better translation. And uh, let me just say that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament is, was written in Hebrew, but it was also translated into the Greek. Uh, in a version that is called the Septuagint, or the LXX. In the Greek, Old Testament, uh, this word that is translated monster in the New King James is the Greek word drakon. What word do we get in English from drakon? Dragon. dragon. Trouble is, in, Hebrews, in Hebrew, you technically don't have a word for dragon. You have a word for a gigantic beast. And so, uh, you know, it's interpreted as, uh, as a monster. In fact, most scholars think that this monster is a crocodile. Uh, I don't buy that. They think that Leviathan is also a crocodile. That's why they translate monster. But the best translation is dragon. So notice that, they, that their taskmaster is Pharaoh, who is called the great dragon. Number five, a deliverer was born, and his name was? Moses. Yes. Number six, Pharaoh feared he might lose his power. his power or his throne. Yes, his kingdom. And therefore he had all the 
males, all the male children, killed. But Moses was protected in Egypt. Now, immediately when you read this, you start thinking about another period in human history when another king also had all of the male children killed. <laughs> yes, it immediately comes to mind. Now let's finish here. Number seven. God called Moses and Israel out of where? Egypt. Out of Egypt. In other words, Moses was protected in Egypt and then he was called out of Egypt to fulfill his mission of delivering Israel uh, from bondage. Number eight. The death of the Passover lamb marked the, the deliverance of Israel from bondage. In other words, the sign of their deliverance was the shedding of the blood of the lamb and the placing of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. After they were delivered, we find that Israel was what? Was baptized in the sea. By the way, did you notice that it says that they were baptized into Moses? Whom are we baptized into today? We're baptized into Christ. The reason why it says that they were baptized into Moses is because Moses is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He symbolizes Christ. What Moses did on a small scale, Jesus does on a much larger scale. Now number 10. Moses, after he was baptized with Israel in the sea, he fasted how long? 40 days on Mount Sinai. Can you think of another guy who, uh, maybe I shouldn't call him a guy, <laughs> another person whom God called out of Egypt and then he was baptized and then he fasted for 40 days? Christ, of course. And so you have Moses fasting 40 days on Mount Sinai and then Moses gave Israel the what? The law which God has spoken to him from the mountain. A law is given from the mountain, in other words. Now we also find that the face of Moses, what? Shone on the mountain. And on the mountain, Moses interceded for his people by offering his own life in place of theirs. In other words, Moses is the great intercessor for Israel when they sin, isn't he? And he says, if necessary, may my life be blotted out as long as my people can be saved. He's the great intercessor between Israel and God. Now notice also that Moses brought what from a rock? Water from a rock. What else did he bring down? Bread from heaven or manna. And raised a what? And raised a serpent in the wilderness. Interesting. Rock, serpent, and bread from heaven. Number 15, Moses organized the 12 tribes, tribes and established <coughs> 70 men to carry on the work of Israel. In other words, 12 wasn't enough. He had to choose 70 to fulfill the work of Israel. The patience of Moses was severely tested by the constant opposition of the Jewish leaders and people. Would you agree with that? Oh, just read the stories that you find in the book of Exodus. I mean, uh, his patience was tried to the utmost. He had the patience of the saints. And imagine that he had, to, he had to be patient 40 years 
with these people who were always wanting to stone him, always wanting to destroy him, always criticizing him, always wanting a different leader. Number 17, Moses died, was what? Ah, you caught that one, good. Was buried by whom? By God. Do you know that Moses is the only person in the Bible uh, where it is told that he was buried by God? You will find no other person in the whole Bible that was buried by God except Moses. And another thing which is very interesting in that text in Deuteronomy 34 is the fact that uh, we are told that no one knew where the tomb of Moses was. That's very unusual in Jewish circles because the Jews mark the tombs of their, uh, of their departed. For example, uh, the tomb of David still exists in Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and his descendants were, were buried or interred, uh, still exists today. Uh, recently they discovered a tomb that says, here lies Daniel the prophet, although they didn't find anybody, but there's an inscription that says that Daniel was resting there. So in other words, the Jews marked the graves of their, of their departed. But with Moses, you find, first of all, it's strange, God bury, buries him, and secondly, nobody knows where his tomb is. And then, lo and behold, in Matthew 17, here's Moses talking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> I say, now wait a minute. Didn't God bury Moses? Yes, he did. But what else did God do? He resurrected Moses. And you, can, you went to Jude 9, I surmise. In Jude uh, verse 9, there's only one chapter in, in this book. It says that when Moses was buried, who came down? Michael. And he contended with whom? He contended with Satan. Over what? Over the body of Moses. Do you think that they were fighting over a corpse? What had Michael come to do? Michael had come to resurrect Moses. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, first of all, he, he appears on the Mount of Transfiguration talking to Jesus. So he must have resurrected. By the way, it doesn't say it was his spirit or his soul that came to the Mount of Transfiguration. It says there appeared to him Moses and Elijah. So beware of putting the spirit of Moses or the spirit of Elijah in there. Because it says it was Moses. For those of you who, who feel like uh, saying that Michael, the archangel, is Christ, because he is called the archangel there in Jude 9, uh, the fact is that 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that when Jesus Christ comes, he will come with a shout. With what else? With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So in other words, Jesus comes to resurrect the dead and he comes with the voice of the archangel. In other words, Moses was resurrected and then he ascended to where? He ascended to heaven because he comes down from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Deuteronomy number 18, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, God promised to send a prophet, what? Greater than Moses. Who is that prophet greater than Moses? Ah, none but Jesus. And let me tell you, every one of the people in the Old Testament, of those who were faithful to God in the Old Testament, are types of Christ. They're symbols of Christ. They represent Christ in some way, in a small-scale way. They're scale models that illustrate something uh, connected with Christ. Now let's go to page number two. 
Revelation 12 describes three stages in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. We're dealing now with the literary structure. Remember we said that this is one of their very important principles? To know how a chapter is organized? The first stage is the battle against the woman's seed. Is that the primary battle in Genesis 3.15? Is the primary battle of the serpent against the seed? Yes. yes. And so first in Revelation 12 you have the, the battle against the woman's seed. The second stage is the war against the against whom? The woman. Very well. Against the woman. And the third stage is the final war against the remnant of her seed. You see the three stages? The seed, the woman, and finally the remnant of the woman's seed. And of course the seed of the woman is whom? Jesus. So when it says that he will fight against the remnant of her seed, her seed is Jesus, so this must be the remnant of whom? The remnant of Jesus that the devil is fighting against. Number two, the literary structure of Revelation 12 is important. Do you have that chart that we added to this lesson? Take a look at it. A careful study of this chapter reveals that verses 1 through 5 are amplified in which verses? Verses 7 to 12. What we find in verse 6 is enlarged upon where? In verses 13 to 16. And verse 17 is enlarged upon in chapters 13 and 14. So tonight we're not going to study the final enlargement, the war against the seed seed. Because we're going to talk later on, uh, we're going to, very, very soon, we're going to have a subject on September 11 in American prophecy. And there we'll be dealing with the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. And, uh, and so we'll be discussing uh, the last stage, the war against the seed seed. But is this clear in your mind? That you have these three uh, uh, stages in Revelation chapter 12? Uh, verses 1 to 5 are amplified in 7 to 12, uh, excuse me, 1 to 5 are amplified in 7 to 12, verse 6 is enlarged upon in 13 to 16, and verse 17 is enlarged upon in, in chapters 13 and 14. We'll come back to this uh, in a little while. Now, the woman of Revelation 12. A careful study of Acts 3, 22 to 26 reveals that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Did you notice that here in Acts chapter 3, Deuteronomy 18 is quoted? Remember Deuteronomy 18, God says, I'm going to send you a prophet who is greater than Moses. You need to listen to him, and whoever doesn't listen to him will be cut off from among the congregation. Remember that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18? That is quoted in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, it says that that prophet greater than Moses was none other than whom? was none other than Jesus Christ. So the prophet greater than Moses that God promised to send to Israel was Jesus Christ himself. Number two, when Jesus was about to be born into this world, the whole of humanity was in what? Was in bondage. No longer literal bondage to literal taskmasters, but was in bondage to what? In bondage to sin. 
The woman of Revelation 12, 1 and 2 represents the church. Which church? The Old Testament church or the New Testament church? <laughs> well, let's look at our next question and we'll have the answer. Well, let's, do no, let's finish number three first. The woman of Revelation 12, 1 and 2 represents the church. Jesus was the seed of Abraham and David, was he not? Was Jesus born from the Old Testament church? Yes. He certainly was. And by the way, this is the reason why Jesus said salvation is of whom? Is of the Jews. Oh, so, so we have, uh, in other words, the Jews save us. <laughs> what did Jesus mean when he said salvation is of the Jews? It means that the Messiah came from the lineage of the Jews. Are you with me? Um, you know, the promises were made to Abraham and his what? And his seed. Are those promises primarily for Abraham or are they primarily for the seed? See, Abraham is only instrumental in bringing the seed into the world so that those promises can be fulfilled. See, Abraham could never receive those promises unless the seed came so that the promises could be fulfilled. Because all of the promises, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Which means that Abraham would have inherited none of the promises if it had not been for the seed who came to recover the lost dominion. Now, number four will tell us uh, what period of the church this is dealing with. You notice that the woman is clothed with what? With a sun. She's standing on the moon, and on her head she has a crown with what? Twelve stars. Now, interestingly enough, in Genesis 37, 9 and 10, the sons of Jacob, by the way, how many sons of Jacob? Twelve. In Genesis 37, it says 11, but uh, Joseph, uh, the, the 11 are bowing to Joseph, who is the 12th. So you have 12 stars. And by the way, the father and the mother are illustrated by the sun and the moon. See, the, the cognate ideas that we have here. And so the sons of Jacob are compared to stars. The 12 stars the woman has on her crown represent the children of Israel. That is to say, the woman with the 12 stars represents what? The Old Testament church. By the way, I can prove this also from the passage in Revelation chapter 12. When John sees the woman, has she had the child yet? No. The woman is pregnant. She's crying out in travail because she wants the deliverer to come. So does the woman pre-exist the birth of the child? Yes. So this must mean which church? The Old Testament church before Jesus Christ was born. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now notice number five. The woman of Revelation 12, 1 and 2 was crying out in pain to be delivered. Israel longed for the coming of the Messiah to deliver them from bondage. And if you read that story about Simeon when Jesus was brought to the temple, you, you can catch this. It says that he was, that he was waiting. The, the word in Greek is stronger. He was, he was desiring the consolation of Israel. See, the crying out in travail of the woman of Revelation 12 represents the fact that the Old Testament church is crying out in agony because she wants a what? She wants a deliverer. You remember the story of Moses? Very, very similar. Only the deliverance now is not deliverance from the literal Egyptians. It's deliverance from what? 
It's deliverance from Satan and it's deliverance from sin. What took place in the Old Testament symbolizes a far greater deliverance in the future. Now let's go to our next section, Satan's warfare against the seed. The male child or seed who was about to be born is whom? Is Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 verse 4 says that he was born of a woman. Galatians 3.16 says to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. It does not say unto seeds as of many, but to his seed as of one. And that seed is whom? Christ. In other words, the seed that is born, the male child that is born represents Jesus Christ. So was a deliverer born from the woman who was crying out in anguish to be delivered? Absolutely. Now number two, Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. So what is the bondage in New Testament times? The physical bondage back there represents the spiritual bondage to sin. Number three, the great dragon who tried to kill Jesus when he was born is identified as that serpent of old. Why do you suppose it says serpent of old? What, what is Revelation 12 telling us? Serpent of old. It's saying go back where? Go back to Genesis 3.15. <laughs> the old King James says the ancient serpent. So here in Revelation 12 it's giving you a hint. It's saying hint, hint, the serpent of old, the ancient serpent. If you want to understand this story, go back to Genesis is what it's saying. Now notice that at this point the warfare is not directed against the woman but against whom? The woman's seed. Is that true of Genesis 3.15? Where is the primary enmity in Genesis 3.15? Is it the serpent against the woman or the serpent against the seed? The seed. Afterwards he goes after the woman, we'll see. But the primary enmity is getting rid of whom? Is getting rid of the seed. So he wasn't able to get rid of the seed coming. So now as soon as the seed is born, he's going to nip this in the bud. Did Satan know approximately when Jesus was going to be born? You know, I find it extremely ironic that the Jews, the people of God, didn't have the foggiest idea that he was going to be born, but the devil did. It says in John 1, he came to his own, and his own received him not. They weren't expecting him, but the devil was. You see, the devil studies Bible prophecy. And do you know what he does? When he studies Bible prophecy and understands it, he tries to fog up people's minds so that they can't understand it. So that when prophecy is fulfilled, people are not prepared to be faithful to God. Is it just possible, throw this out as a possibility, is it just possible that much of the interpretation of prophecy that is going on out there is false? Even within the Christian church? We're going to find as we keep continue studying in this seminar that there's tremendous number of erroneous ideas. And you know, the whole Christian world today says, oh no, our focus on Bible prophecy is absolutely correct. But you know what's interesting? The whole Jewish nation with just a few people that were the exception were totally deceived about how the Messiah was going to come. And when he came, they did recognize him. Is it just possible that God's end time church or end time people will misunderstand prophecy in the same way so that when Jesus comes they will not be expecting him because they're expecting him to come in a different way 
This is serious business we're talking about here, folks. This is not merely academic. This is an issue of knowing what really is going on, what is really going to happen, so that we can fit in with God's plan. This is interesting, intellectually challenging. I find it exciting. But it has, it has to speak to our hearts and to our minds so that we are ready for the tremendous things that are going to take place. If you don't know who the enemy is going to be or how he's going to manifest himself, you're at, at the mercy of the enemy. We need to know who the beast is. We need to know who the image to the beast is. We need to know what the mark of the beast is. Because I believe that these things are coming in this generation. I'm not trying to set dates, but by what I see happening in the world. We're going to talk more about this in future lectures. We're, we're going to find that we're living at the very end of time. Now, number four. Well, actually, let's finish number three. The Jews didn't know the Messiah had been born, but Satan did. Satan must have licked his chops when he saw what appeared to be a defenseless baby born on his turf. Do you think the devil at this point knew that uh, it was Jesus who was being born into planet Earth? Yeah. Oh, there's many prophecies in the Old Testament. He knew it very well. And what he was saying is, in heaven, he threw me out of heaven because that was his turf. But now he's born, being born on my turf. And he's a baby. And if I was able to conquer Adam, this Fellow is going to be easy to conquer. But the more Jesus lived, the more frustrated the enemy became. Number four. When Jesus was born, King Herod had all the male children, two years and younger, killed. Now notice this. Herod feared that the deliverer would take his throne. But really it was Satan who feared for his own existence. See, the devil whispers in, in the ear of Herod. See, we read behind the lines. He says to Herod, Herod, one has been born who, who is going to claim to be the Messiah. And if you allow him to live, he's going to take your throne. But the devil really is thinking, the Messiah has been born, and if I allow him to live, he's going to take my throne. But he uses whom? He uses Herod as his instrument just as Pharaoh in the Old Testament tried to get rid of the liver by slaying all of the male children. Why? Jesus was protected from Satan's wrath where? In Egypt. And I did not write the reference, so you want to write it in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15 quotes Hosea 11 and verse 1. And it says that this applies, which originally applied to Israel, literal Israel, its real fulfillment is with whom? Is with Jesus. Notice Matthew 2 and verse 15. Let's read verse 14 for the context. Who wants to read that? Somebody have it? Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And when there is still the death of Herod, that was spoken by the Lord of the prophesying to the saying, How many did I call my son? Where does that quotation come from? Hosea 11 verse 1. Originally it applied to whom? To literal Israel. But its real fulfillment is in Jesus. Was Jesus shielded in Egypt? Yes. Was he called out of Egypt to, to perform his work of deliverance? Yes. Just like Moses was. This is not coincidence. It's not an accident. Number six. Satan tried to kill Jesus on other occasions during his ministry. 
See, we usually just think of when he was born, you know, the, the devil through Herod tried to destroy Christ, nip this in the bud. But there were other occasions during the ministry of Jesus where Satan tried to kill him. It doesn't say so directly on the surface, but in the light of Genesis 3.15, we know that that's what's happening. For example, and I hope that you looked up these references, um, he tried to, to do what? He tried to kill him in a storm, drown him. And we know that because, you see, in Israel, when it's storm season, uh, boats don't go out onto the lake. But you read the story there, all of the boats were out on the, uh, on the lake. This was a storm out of season. Unexpected. And the Bible says that the devil is the prince of the power of the air. The devil causes storms, doesn't he? Hurricanes and, and earthquakes and disasters. The Bible says that when you read the story of Job. And so the devil knew Jesus was sleeping in the boat and it was his intention to drown him. On another occasion, a mob tried to push Jesus over what? Over a cliff. Do you suppose that only the people were involved in this or were there powers behind the people? No doubt powers behind the people. On several occasions, uh, what did they try to do with Jesus? They tried to stone him, but the Bible says that he would disappear in their midst because the time had not come. And sometimes the demons, if you read that fascinating story in Mark chapter 1, sometimes the demons would come running to where Jesus was, like the two demon-possessed men from Gadara. <laughs> and when they saw that it was Jesus, they would stop and say, uh-oh! <laughs> and the interesting thing is, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demons say, we know who you are! You're the Holy One of God. The devils knew, but, but the Jews didn't. And then they asked the big question. They said, have you come to destroy us? Oh, what is their concern? That Jesus has come to what? He has come to destroy them. They know that he has come to destroy them. Uh, Jesus came to destroy the works of whom? The works of the devil. And the devil knew it. Now, let's go to page 3. Other events in the seed's life. Jesus was baptized where? In the Jordan River. And then fasted for how long? For 40 days in the wilderness. What is Jesus repeating here? He's repeating the story of Moses. Only look, the story of Moses is only a little model in miniature illustration a scale model so that we can understand the issues in the large fulfillment in Jesus. In other words, we're dealing with what is called in the Bible typology, type, anti-type. Little picture that shows the greater picture, the broader picture. And the Old Testament is full of these stories that point to the future, to the large fulfillment, the large picture in Christ. Let me give, just give you one or two other examples from the Old Testament. You have the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, or the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Maybe we should say it that way. You read Genesis 22, it says that Isaac, God, God tells Abraham, take Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Interesting, Mount Moriah was the very place where Solomon's temple was built, where the sacrifices were offered. The place was the exact place where the sacrifices which pointed forward to Jesus were offered. And the interesting thing is that 
The father is old at this time. And the, and the son is young. You said have the ancient of days and his son. And for three days and three nights. The agony of the father. Knowing that he has to give up his own son. When they get to the top of Mount Moriah. And Abraham by the way. Who carries the wood? Isaac. Who carries the instruments of punishment? The knife and the fire. Abraham. Interesting that, that uh, the wood is carried by Isaac. Who in the future carried the wood? Jesus. But he fell under the punishment of whom? Of his father. It says so in Isaiah chapter 53. And so he gets up there and his father says, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. And Isaac says, no way, and runs. No! Does he place himself in the hands of his father? Yes, he voluntarily is willing to offer his life. And by the way, Hebrews 11 says that Abraham received Isaac from the dead in figure or in type because he thought he was as good as dead. But on the third day, he receives his son alive. And then, of course, Isaac could not be, a, not be a perfect type of Christ because Abraham would have had to sacrifice him. So what happened is uh, Ram, which is a male uh, sheep, was found in a thicket and the Bible says that the ram was offered in place of his son. Like Jesus was offered in place of us. What a fantastic messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. A historical type Something that happened in real life back then, but has a much larger dimension. Jacob's ladder is another illustration. And by the way, John 1.51 says, Jesus says that he is the ladder. See a ladder, how many key parts does a ladder have? I know, most people say three, but it's two. The top and the bottom, because you have the top and the bottom, and you have the middle too. See, the top of the ladder reaches to the highest heaven and the bottom of the ladder is planted on earth is what it says there. We have illustrated here the fact that Jesus is God with the highest God in heaven but he's also man with us. And because he is man and God he is able to connect us with God and God with us. He is the great ladder through whom we can go to heaven. See, And this is in the Old Testament. And I could give you story after story after story. I'm still studying the Old Testament. And stories that I never thought were types of Christ. And, and they're beautiful symbols. Uh, historical symbols on a small scale of greater future events that are fulfilled in Jesus. The whole Bible is a story of Jesus. Even the Old Testament. And people who say that the old, they can't find Christ in the Old Testament, they're just as bad as the Jews today who have a veil over their faces. Because you see, the Jews today can't find Christ in the Old Testament either. And they have a veil over their eyes. And the Bible says that when they're converted to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. When they see Jesus, no longer any veil. When you find Jesus in the Old Testament, the veil is removed. So don't let anybody tell you, I'm a New Testament Christian. You correct them and you say, uh, you're only a New Testament Christian? I'm a Bible Christian. Now let's continue here. After Jesus was baptized and fasted for 40 days, he explained the law of his kingdom from where? 
from a mountain. And by the way, he actually quotes two of the, two of the Ten Commandments. And he says, don't you think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets? I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he quotes the commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Some people today say, we don't need to abide by the letter. We only need to abide by the spirit of the law. Not the letter. Well, the fact is, you know what? The Lord Jesus, instead of doing away with the law, intensified it. And it made it more demanding. Because, for example, he said, you have heard in ancient times the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But then Jesus says, but I say unto you, whoever looks upon a woman to covet her has already committed adultery in his heart. Who? Jesus says, not only is it wrong to commit the evil act, it's wrong to have the evil thought. You have heard in the ancient times, thou shalt not kill. See, Moses was given the law, Jesus explains the law from a mountain. You have heard in ancient times, thou shalt not kill. Jesus says, but whoever hates his brother, see, has a murderer in his heart, as it says in 1 John. And so Jesus, instead of getting rid of the law, what he does is he makes it more demanding. He intensifies the law. As it says in Isaiah, he was going to magnify the law and make it honorable. See, it doesn't help to do away with the law. Come on, folks. Would you like to get, it, get rid of the law so that you can't save everybody who's in jail? Huh? Say, everybody's under grace. No more laws. Oh, have mercy. I'd set myself up at home. And then we wouldn't even be safe. You see, our problem is not the law. Our problem is with sin. Because we're sinners, the law condemns us. And the solution is not to get rid of the law which condemned us. The solution is to get Christ, accept Christ, who took our condemnation of the law upon himself. Are you with me? You know, the Bible speaks of the law as a mirror. What do you see when you look in a mirror in the morning? I see a major disaster. Well, I see a major disaster every time I look in the mirror, no matter what time of the day. But that's all right, my wife loves me. I think. No, I know. No, she doesn't love my looks. She loves me. That's one of the problems with marriages these days. People get married for looks. But then when there's no more looks, there's no more marriage. So you, get, you have to get married for the, for the everlasting values. Don't look only at the looks. See, when, then when a person gets a pot belly and wrinkles, no more looks, no more marriage. There has to, marriage has to be built on something more solid than just the external or feelings or emotions. The problem, the youth today, they get so involved with their feelings, their feelings are in fourth gear before they put their brain in first gear. <laughs> Always love uh, with your heart, but let love go through your mind before it gets to your heart. For those of you who are not yet married. How did we get off on marriage here? <laughs> well, when you look in a mirror, that's how we got off on marriage. When you look in a mirror, does the mirror tell you the truth? Do you like it? Is the mirror doing you a favor? Is it? Of course it is. It's telling you the truth. 
So the solution to what the mirror tells you is to break the mirror. That's what many Christians say. They say, the solution to my sin problem is to get rid of the law that shows me my sin. Come on, folks, that makes no sense. The law of God is everlasting. It points out sin so that we can come to Jesus. You see, if the law didn't point out your sin, you wouldn't feel any need to come to Jesus. The law shows you your need of Jesus. And when you do do away with the law, you don't feel any need of Jesus. That's the reason why there are so many Christians who, who live like the devil. If Christianity is only getting off the hook because somebody else paid, Christianity is a very weak thing. You see, God doesn't want us only to have forgiveness. God wants us to have a change in our lives. So that we're nicer to people, we're sweeter, we're kinder, we smile, we're happy. We live differently. The gospel not only forgives, the gospel should transform and change the life so that the world can see the difference. If not, Christianity means nothing. Okay, now let's go back to the lesson here. We have a lot to cover yet. Number three. The what of Jesus shown as the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration? The face of Jesus. Jesus is the what? Is the rock. Notice that Moses brought water out of a rock, but Jesus is the rock. What else? Oh, Jesus is the bread that was illustrated by the bread in the Old Testament. And he is what? He is the serpent who was raised in the wilderness. He is the fulfillment of those little tiny historical illustrations in the Old Testament. Number five, Jesus called twelve and established. Of course, all of this is a coincidence. You think so? It can't be a coincidence. There's too many parallels. He established 70 men to carry on his work. Number six, Jesus was constantly criticized by the people he came to save, wasn't he? They constantly wanted to what? To kill him, just like they did with Moses. Jesus died, resurrected, and was what? And was caught up to God and his throne. That the same thing that happened with Moses? Yes. The sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God marked the deliverance of God's people from their what? From their uh, bondage or from their sin, from bondage to sin. Number nine, Satan constantly tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross because he knew that the death of Jesus would crush his what? He said, do you remember in Genesis 3.15 after it says in Genesis 3.15 that there was going to be enmity and the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head? that in verse 21 you have God taking garments of skins and covering the nakedness of Adam and Eve. In order for it to get skins, what needed to happen? Animals had to die. In other words, God was saying, Satan, I'm going to crush your head. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to do it by giving my life in place of the life of man. In that way, sin will be punished in me but man can be saved if he receives me. And the devil, of course, soon knew, soon discovered that. So Satan tr- constantly tried uh, to keep Jesus from going to the cross because he knew that if Jesus died on the cross, he would bear the sins of all humanity and those who accept Jesus would eventually be saved. Satan offered on the Mount of Temptation Jesus what? 
the kingdoms of the world. What was the devil really telling Jesus? Yeah, he was saying to bow down and worship, but the devil was really saying, you don't have to go where? You don't have to go to the cross. You can have all these kingdoms easy, free of charge. Just bow down and worship me for, for a second. In Matthew 16, 22 and 23, Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem and I have to die. And Peter went to Peter saying, Oh Lord, don't be a pessimist. Messiah doesn't die. Messiah reigns on the throne in Jerusalem. What does Jesus say? Get thou behind me, Satan. What was Satan trying to do through Peter? Keep Jesus from what? From going to the cross. And then just a few days later, they're at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus with three of his disciples, including Peter. And of course, by this time, Peter knows that Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. And Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let's build three booths and stay here. Towards the end of the ministry of Jesus, some Greeks come to Jesus. And they say, we want you to go and preach the gospel in our nation. What a temptation. And Jesus says, no. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, now is the time for me to die. And if I die like a seed of wheat dies and goes into the ground, then there will be much fruit. Then there will be many among the Greeks who will be saved. The, the Greeks coming to Jesus and trying to get him to go to Greece to preach his message was really a temptation for him to delay his death. And then, of course, you know when Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were people at the foot of the cross that were saying, Ah, if you're the Son of God, what? Come down from there. Who do you suppose was behind those people? Satan. Satan did not want Jesus to die on the cross. Because by dying on the cross, Jesus would take the kingdom away from him. And then, of course, the reason why the devil had Jesus reviled so much, spit upon, kicked, his beard torn out from his face, is because the devil wanted Jesus to retaliate. If Jesus had gotten angry and had retaliated, the whole plan of salvation would have been ruined. So we need to see behind these scenes uh, a great controversy going on in the invisible world. Now, it is clear that the story of Moses is fulfilled on a larger scale in whom? In Jesus. But now notice the principle. We're going to come back to this principle. Very important prophetic principle that we haven't dealt with directly before. Moses delivered whom? Literal Israel. From what? Literal bondage. In literal Egypt. And took them across the literal desert to the literal land of Canaan. A literal lamb was slain. Literal water came from a literal rock and literal bread came from heaven. A literal serpent was raised in the, in the desert to prevent literal death. But all of these things in the future are fulfilled how? Spiritually and no longer locally in the Middle East, but how? On a worldwide scale to all of God's people. That's a very important principle. What was literal and local in the Old Testament is to be understood in the spiritual sense. Jesus obviously is not a serpent. He is not bread and he's not a rock. Those things have a spiritual meaning. They have a meaning beyond the literal objects. They try to teach a spiritual lesson and those lessons are no longer for literal Israel, that little nation who was in the wilderness. These things now become a message to whom? To all of the world. 
to spiritual Israel, so to speak. Now let's go to the seed's victory at the bottom of page 3. Christ's victory is amplified in Revelation 12, 10 through 12. There we are told that the heavenly hosts sang what? Now. Salvation and strength and what? And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For what? For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been what? Has been cast out. Or cast down. Yes, down from where? From heaven. Is this talking about the original casting down of Satan uh, that we studied about in Isaiah 14? No, and let me tell you why. It says here that he is cast out who accused the brethren day and night. When he was originally cast out, there were no brethren to accuse. Are you with me or not? It says, the one who accused the brethren day and night has been cast out. He was accusing the brethren before he was cast out. But at the beginning, when he was cast out originally, there were no brethren to accuse. And so this must refer to a different casting out. Now let me explain what this means. Satan was originally physically cast out of heaven. But when he overcame Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, whenever there was a meeting in heaven, such, such as we read in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, who went representing this world? Satan went to the heavenly councils representing this world. You can read it in Job chapter 1. It says the sons of God came to a meeting with God. And God says to, to Satan, where do you come from? He says, well, I come from, from patrolling my kingdom down there. From patrolling the earth. Because the devil had stolen the dominion of the world from Adam. Adam should have been in that meeting. But listen, folks, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan no longer represents this world. Because Jesus regained the kingdom. The devil doesn't want us to think so. And by the way, what's happening in the world is a sign of a desperate foe. Say, oh, if God is in control, why are things so bad? Well, because the devil has gotten a blow on his head and he knows his time is short. It's kind of like Saddam Hussein, you know, when, when he saw that his cause was lost, he says, well, I'm going to go, but with, not without a bang. And he, so, so he lit all those oil wells and he threw all the oil into the gulf, you know, he says, I'm going to go with a bang. Well, that's the thing with the devil. He knows he's lost. So what he's doing in the world now, he's going to go. He says, but I'm going to go with a bang. What we see in the world is a sign of a desperate foe who knows that he's been defeated. You see, now we, the devil wants us to think that he can go and accuse us before God. He can't do that anymore. Because the representative of the human race, the one who has dominion now, is Jesus Christ. Number two, even though Satan was cast out of heaven when he rebelled against God, he still represented this world in the heavenly council. But when Christ died on the cross, the prince of this world was what? According to John 12, was cast out. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from where? Like lightning from heaven. Praise the Lord. He can't go, he can't pester the heavenly beings anymore. I'll bet you the heavens are ha happy about that. In fact, we're going to read it in a moment. We got rid of this pest. Notice, number three. 
in the light of Christ's victory, the heavens and those who dwell in them are invited to what? To rejoice. They're rid of the past. But the case of planet Earth is, Earth is different. Did you notice the contrast? It says, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But then it says, woe to you who dwell on the earth. See? Rejoice. Woe. In heaven, rejoice. On earth, woe. <laughs> woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Because he knows that he has a short time. You say, well, 2,000 years have gone by. In the context of eternity, that is a short time. Okay, let's go quickly to the last two sections. Well, it's late. You want to go cover this quickly? Okay, number one. When Satan was defeated at the cross, he directed his onslaught against whom? Against the woman. Who had to flee where? To the wilderness. Where she had a place prepared by God that they should what? Feed her there how long? 1,260 days. Have we found this time period before? Let me just make a chart here real quick. Remember Revelation chapter 13? You have a lion. You have a bear. You have a leopard. You have a dragon beast. The dragon beast has what? Ten horns. And then the dragon beast uh, with the ten horns gives his authority to whom? To the beast. And how many stages of existence is the beast going to have? Two. 1260 years and then his deadly wound is going to be what? His deadly wound is going to be healed and then you're going to have a final persecution. Right? In other words, uh, once again the dragon is going to persecute God's people. Now, notice the parallel in Revelation chapter 12. You don't have a lion, a bear, and a leopard, but these are all in the Old Testament, aren't they? The lion, the bear, and the leopard are all Old Testament kingdoms. Do you have a dragon in Revelation chapter 12? Yes, the dragon wants to kill whom? The male child. What empire are we talking about here? The fourth empire. Are you following me? Now, why does Revelation 12 start with the Roman Empire? Let's apply our principle. Why? The prophecy begins when the prophet what? When the prophet lives. Are you following the principle of historicism? See, John lives in the time when, when the child is going to be killed. So, that's where the prophecy begins. Now, does that dragon beast have ten horns? It does. You can read it in Revelation 12 and verse 3. And then after the dragon with the ten horns tries to kill the male child, but it can't kill the male child, what is the next stage? The woman flees where? Into the wilderness for how long? 1,260 days. Is it following the same sequence as Revelation 13? Yes, it is. Only in Revelation 13 it says that the beast persecutes the woman. In Revelation 12 it says the dragon persecutes the woman who runs through the wilderness. So in other words, who is behind the beast? The dragon. See, we have two perspectives. Revelation 13 speaks about the beast who persecutes God's people, but Revelation 12 says the real power behind the beast is 
the dragon, Satan. Now let's go quickly through this. Number two, the 1,260 days is the same period as the 42 months. And the time, times, and the dividing of times. This can be seen by comparing Revelation 12, 6 with 13, with chapter 12, verses 13 to 15, and Revelation 13 and verse 5. Number three, the wings of an eagle represent God's providential care for his people in the wilderness. Did you read that in Exodus? Isn't that an interesting reference? See, we interpret symbols by going to other places where the same symbol is used. The waters which the serpent spewed out of his mouth represent what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues through which the devil wants to drown God's people during the 1260 years, the Dark Ages, the period of the Roman Catholic dominion during the Middle Ages. Number five, when the woman was being persecuted by the serpent, the what? The earth helped the woman by swallowing up the waters which the serpent spewed out of its mouth. Let me ask you, does persecution come to, to an end for a while? Yes? Of course. Because the, the earth, and we're going to talk about this later on, the earth swallows up the waters of persecution, and persecution what? Ceases. Let me ask you, does persecution cease after the 1260 years for a while? Yes. But then what's going to happen with the beast? Its deadly wound is going to be what? Healed. And persecution will arise again. In Revelation 12, after the earth helps the woman and persecution stops, later on is the persecution going to start again? Notice the last section of the lesson. After a temporary, and by the way, you want to continue coming because I have to talk to you about what the earth represents. And what the beast from the earth represents. See, all these beasts have come out of the sea. Revelation 13 has a second beast that comes out of the earth. So you need to keep on coming if you want the complete picture. After a temporary suspension of persecution, the dragon would be what? Wroth with the woman. Would persecution arise again? Yes. And would go out to make war with the remnant of her seed. What is the remnant? The last piece of the roll. This is the last end time church. The remnant of Jesus. Number two, this remnant will have two identifying characteristics. They will keep what? The commandments of God. How can the commandments of God be nailed to the cross if these people are keeping the commandments of God? Are you with me? They keep the commandments of God. Nobody can keep the commandments, can they? Well, if nobody can keep the commandments, then God must be lying in this verse. When he says that he's going to have the remnant of her seed, the end time remnant, will keep the nine commandments of God. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. That's right. And you all know that verse in uh, Philippians uh, chapter, what is it, chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, I can do most things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, that's not what it says, is it? It says, I can do all things except overcome sin through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And all means all. Okay, so they will keep the commandments of God and they will have what? Testimony of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the end time remnant is, you have to find a remnant that, keep, that claims that we need to keep all of God's commandments and that has the testimony of Jesus. Later on we'll talk a little bit more about the testimony of Jesus. Fact number three, the commandments of God are a reference to what? 
to the Ten Commandments. Did you notice there in Revelation 22, 14, and 15 that uh, those who are inside the city, blessed are those who keep his commandments? And in verse 15 it speaks about, it speaks about idolaters and liars and adulterers and murderers. Those are violations of the Ten Commandments, aren't they? The people who are outside. But they not only keep the commandments, the Ten Commandments of God, but they have the testimony of Jesus, which is what? The spirit of prophecy. Otherwise they have the gift of prophecy in their midst. The brethren of John who have the testimony of Jesus are identified as what? As prophets. So the testimony of Jesus is to have a prophet. And finally, number four, if we are Christ's, then we are also Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. What does it mean to be the seed of Abraham? What does it mean to be the seed of Abraham? Your last name has to be Ginsburg. No. You have to live in the Middle East. In the Holy Land. No. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed. And do you know what this means? It means that neither the Arabs, neither the Palestinians, nor the Jews in the Middle East right now are the seed of Abraham. We're going to study this. Why are not the Palestinians and the Jews in the Middle East, why are, they not the, uh, why are they not the seed of Abraham? Because they don't have Christ. Do you know what? That conflict in the Middle East could disappear in an instant if they accepted Christ. Because if they both accepted Christ, they would both suddenly really be Abraham's seed and heirs of all the promises of the Bible. So what they need most is Jesus. Okay, let's, uh, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good time we've had this evening studying your word. We can't help but uh, admire the way in which you have revealed your will in your holy word. How you've given us these pictures in the Old Testament which are fulfilled so specifically and so exactly in the New Testament in Jesus. I ask, Lord, that what we've studied tonight might not be merely academic, but that it will lead us to make a commitment to Jesus, fully, completely, without reservations. If there is anybody here tonight that uh, is miserable because he or she have not given their lives to Jesus, I ask, Lord, that they will do it tonight so that they might experience the happiness and the joy and the peace that comes from knowing Jesus. We ask that as we return to our homes, your angels will protect us from harm and danger. Bless us and keep us in your care until we gather again tomorrow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.